Moving on to number four, remembering number one is that we need to use uh, expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. Number two, you're supposed to have fun. Number three, you're supposed to cultivate humility through prayer. Here is number four. Number four. I'm sorry, let me pray before I begin. Father in heaven, we pray for grace and strength for every hour, including this hour. I thank you, God, for the attentiveness of the people. I pray, dear Lord, that that would continue. I pray, dear Lord, that I would be able to continue to speak with uh, joy and delight as I think about my family and as I think about their families. I think, Lord, about you as my heavenly Father. Give me grace in this hour. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Number four, use precious time with strategic urgency in order to minimize regrets. Use precious time with strategic urgency in order to minimize regrets. And when I use the word precious, I mean it is valuable because there is not that much of it. Something that you never want to do under any circumstances ever for any reason ever, never, is watch a football game with me. Especially a Georgia Bulldog football game because I really get into it. Uh, I am animated. I am out of my seat. I am uh, using a lot of volume. Uh, I am somewhat critical in my attitude. I am screaming at the television as though... Uh, the people who are playing can actually hear me. And it is, it is, a, it is an experience you don't want to see. And if you ever watched me watch a football game, any respect that you would have for me would be gone immediately. And here's the thing that I am bothered most with in watching football. It appears as though most coaches and most quarterbacks are not aware of the fact that it is a timed game and that every second is precious and it is valuable. For those of you that are football fans, you know that in order to stop the clock, you get out of bounds. Uh, you know that you are given a limited number of timeouts, and you need to save those timeouts in order to stop the clock. It is a timed game, and every second is precious. Let me say this. Life is a timed game. Moses writes in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is talking about the span of one's life. What is the span of one's life? Well, according to Scripture, and give or take, this is true, the span of one's life is three score and ten, or 70 years, or if you're strong, four score that's 80 years, so you're probably going to die sometime between the ages of 70 and 80. I know that there are people who die sooner than that. I know that there are people who live beyond that and are playing with house money. But give or take, you're going to live somewhere between 70 and 80 years. And that actually is the national average. Well, if you consider that that is the entirety of your lifespan... The time that you have with your kids is much shorter. Now, if you consider what James says in James chapter 4, that your life is a vapor. In other words, here today, gone tomorrow. If the entirety of your life is a vapor, arguing then from the greater to the lesser, 
the amount of time that you actually have with your children is microscopic. And if you consider the amount of time that you have with your children in which you are able to have an influence over your, over your children, it is infinitesimal. It is a timed game. Uh, we homeschooled our children. I'm not saying that you should. Uh, perhaps you should, but we did. Our primary reason for homeschooling was not that we were afraid of the New York City public schools and safety. Uh, it wasn't so that they would get a better education, uh, because quite frankly, they probably would have gotten a better education if they'd actually gone to school. We pretty much just... Uh, watch soap operas and play volleyball. So, uh, you know, it wasn't for educational purposes. And it wasn't that we were that frightened by the influence of their friends, although that would have been bad. But primarily, the reason why we homeschooled our children is because we enjoyed spending time with them. And as we sent our children to public school in the early years of their education, we realized that there was a tremendous amount of energy that was being spent to get them up, get them dressed, get them out the door, get them to school, not be with them all day, pick them up, they are tired, you get them home, and then they need to work on schoolwork. And the amount of time that we had with them was just so short. And so what we wanted to do is just spend more time with our children. So for the most part, we homeschooled them. Children are a blessing, Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And so when I consider our children and the short amount of time that we had with them, my son Parker left home when he was 16 years old. Uh, he was a New York City homeschooler. He wanted to play football for one year. Uh, as a homeschooler in New York City, you couldn't do that. And so he moved to Georgia to live with my wife's parents for his senior year of high school so that he could... Uh, so that he could play football and so that he could get Georgia State residency so as to go to the University of Georgia, which he did. Uh, but but it was a sad, sad, sad day uh, in 2008 when Parker, at the age of 16, left home. He hasn't been back since. He's been back to visit, but when he left, he left. Charlie had just turned 17 when he left for college at North Greenville. Savannah was 17 when she left to go to Boyce College in Kentucky. And Madison, she was the old woman of the bunch. She left us at age 18. And so their time with us was limited and then it was gone. And I just want to say that if you do not capitalize upon the few moments that you have with your children, you're going to wake up one morning like Teve in Fiddler on the Roof, as you can envision that movie or that Broadway play, as he is standing at the daughter's, at his daughter's wedding, and he sings this song. Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? And when did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it just yesterday that they were small? Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the days. So it's 1973. I'm 12 years old. 
We go on family vacation. This is a big deal for us. I was raised in a family where we didn't have a lot of money. And there was a week of vacation that my father would take during the summer. I can remember it very clearly. I finished the sixth grade. We got in my father's red 1968 Oldsmobile, which had no air conditioning. And we drove from Dubois, Pennsylvania to St. Petersburg, Florida. And we stayed at the Empress Motel on 4th Street. I can remember that this motel had a pool which was glorious. I had never experienced anything like that. I had never stayed in a motel. I can remember the maid's name was Beulah Snow. I can see, like, I can see it clearly. This was a really big deal for me. It would take two days to drive there without air conditioning, two days to drive home without air conditioning, and then a few days in the middle at the Empress Motel on 4th Street in St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm 12 years old, and uh, because all of my siblings were a good bit older than me, I was essentially an only child at the time, so it is just my mother and my father and me. In this motel room, there was a bed, and there was another bed, and there was a bathroom, and that's what our room was. And I'm in my bed one night, and out of nowhere, for no reason whatsoever, just, just because I said to my father, I said, Hey dad, do you want to sleep in the bed with me tonight? And my father, my father was not only wise in what he did, but he was wise in that he explained things to me. And he said to me, he said, Eddie boy, I sure do want to sleep in the bed with you tonight. And I'm going to tell you why, because the day is fast coming when you're not going to want to sleep in the bed with your old man. I didn't understand that at all. It meant nothing to me. I moved over. He got in the bed with me. He slept with me. We woke up the next morning and I went and got in the pool. Didn't really mean that much to me. But my father understood something that I didn't. Fast forward to 2002. I take my son Parker on a trip to Cooperstown, New York. He's 11 years old. Once again, if you have not taken your children to the Baseball Hall of Fame, you were just objectively bad parents. Uh, So I take them to, I take him to Cooperstown, and I take him in the off-season because it's a little bit cheaper, and we find this, wouldn't call it a hotel, wouldn't call it a motel, it's more or less just like a, a, a place where you can sleep if you give them money, and it was enormous, and I think it was like 50 bucks, And you walk upstairs and you walk into this room and there is a bedroom with two beds. And then you walk through an archway into another room. There's two beds and then there is a living room and then there is a kitchen. And on the other side of that, there's a bedroom. There's just two of us. There's three bedrooms. There's six beds, a living room. Parker walks in and he is freaking out. This is great. He said, we can each have our own room. I said, that's, that's fabulous. That's great. Whatever you want, pal. So we get back to uh, go to sleep that night, and as it turns out, because we were doing our Bible reading, which we did every night, um, we're in the same bedroom. He's in one bed. I'm in another. We read the Word. We pray. We turn out the lights. It's dark. We're going to sleep. And Parker says, knowing nothing about what happened to me when I was 12 years old, he says to me, Hey, Dad, you think it would be okay if I slept in the same bed with you? I said, Parker boy, 
It'd be great if you slept in the same bed with me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the day is fast coming when you're not going to want to get in the bed with your old man. What did my father teach me and what did I teach my son? I taught them that there is a tiny, minuscule window of opportunity when we have an influence on our children. And when it is there, you have to pounce on it like a piranha. That's the good side. The sad part is that I have many regrets about times when I did not spend time with my children. So, for example, here's my bedroom. You walk out of it, you walk down the hall, and the room immediately to my right is Charlie's bedroom. And I would walk past Charlie's bedroom when he was a little boy, and he would say, at the most inopportune times, hey, Dad, do you want to play G.I. Joe? I'd say, I do. I definitely do want to play G.I. Joe with you. But right now, I've got to go. And I would be off to wherever it was that I was going, whether it was a hospital visit or an elders meeting or counseling session or whatever it was that I needed to do. And I would say, Charlie, I want to play G.I. Joe's with you, but now it's just, it's, you just hit me at a really bad time. Fade in, fade out, time passes. I walk into Charlie's bedroom. He's in there. I said, hey, Charlie, you want to play G.I. Joe's? He says, sure. And we reach under the bed and we pull out the canister with the G.I. Joe's on it. And there's probably a quarter inch of dust on top of it. And we pull off the lid and we are on the floor and I'm kind of holding these toys. And, and very sincerely, I asked him the question, all right, well, like what, like how do, how do you do, like what are you, what are you supposed to do? And he said, dad, it's okay. He goes, you know, I really don't play with GI Joes anymore. And I thought to myself, I would give the world and everything in it if I could rewind the clock and I could go back to the day as I was passing his room when he said, hey, dad, you want to get on the floor and play with me? Because I'm telling you, those times are passing quickly. It was yesterday. It was yesterday that we brought our our son Parker home from the hospital in Columbia, South Carolina as a brand new baby. I do not know where the past 31 years have gone. They have gone by like that. And I'm telling you, the longer you live, the faster time goes. And therefore, you need to take advantage of the time that you have because it is a precious gift from God. You are not going to get it back. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, make the best use of time. Another version of that says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Time is the most valuable resource that you have. I would encourage you while you have this time with your children to take advantage of it and do not believe the lie which I myself believed. And that was that there's going to be plenty of time for this later. We're going to have a good time then. We're going to have a good time then. No, while it is in your hand to do good, do it. Do not say, and I realize that the context of that proverb is different, but the fact of the matter is when you have the time, you should use it. 
Think about every football game you have ever watched where a team is trailing by one score at the end of the game and the game ends because what? Because time ran out. And if you had replayed the game and said, if they had just used time more wisely here on this play, on that play, there would have been time at the end to score if they needed to. Well, life is more important than a football game and what you have is a limited resource. For those of you that are holding little babies right now, I would trade places with you immediately. If you want to be fat and old and 61 years old, you can have that. Let me have the little babies again. It is, you, I hope you realize that what you have is valuable and precious, and I hope that you will take advantage of it. Which brings us to point number five. Point number five. Now, this is going to be a little bit different than you think that it is. So hear it out, not only the point, but the explanation of it. And that is, use sincere thanksgiving with peaceful contentment in order to teach providence. That's really convoluted. Use sincere thanksgiving with peaceful contentment in order to teach providence. Uh, this is Thanksgiving week. And so we are reminded of thankfulness. But I want to give it to you from a slightly different perspective. And that is, I want us to work with the assumption that things in life are going to go wrong. You are not going to get your way. Job promotion is going to be given to someone else. Things in your house are going to break. Your team is going to lose. You are going to get sick. Things are going to go wrong. And most importantly, your children are going to disappoint you. The way that you handle failure and loss and disappointment is going to shape your children more than if you succeed and if you do well. Because... And, and this is why I have argued for years, it is actually of value with respect to life and sanctification to be a Mets fan. And here's the reason why. <laughs> the Bible says, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Life is not Disney World. Life is not being a Yankee fan with 27 world championships. That's not the way life works. Life is being a Mets fan where there are creative and excessive and consistent ways to lose. Quite literally, there was a book written last year called So Many Ways to Lose, a memoir of a Mets fan. That's what, that's, but that is what life is like. Things don't go our way. And so what your children are doing is they have a ticket, they have a front row seat, to view the drama that is your life, and they watch how you respond when things do not go well. And the most valuable tool that we have in order to maintain mental health and a proper outlook on life is a working knowledge of the sovereignty of God. When we learn how, practically speaking, with our responses and our emotions to deal with disappointment. How do we do it? First of all, theologically, we need to be anchored in. We need to be anchored in the sovereignty of God. 
absolutely certain, 100%, that whatever happened, it happened because God ordained it to happen. That he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That he does what is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right. Or, as Paul writes in Romans, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. So how do we respond when unexpected sickness hits us or when there is a financial crisis or things in any other way just don't work out as they should? Job teaches us how to respond. Job 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, without a firm, fixed, deep-seated conviction that God is in absolute control of all things and that what he is doing, he is doing for a purpose, you will lose your mind. I hope that you are of a reformed persuasion theologically. Um, I know that there are many wonderful Christians who are not reformed. I happen to be. So I think it is important that you teach your children uh, T-U-L-I-P, that you teach them about total depravity and unconditional election and limited atonement and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. Now, I realize that there are many Christians that do not agree with that. Bless be God. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. I think I'm right. I think that's important. But what I believe is more important in raising your children with respect to the sovereignty of God are not the finer points of the five points of Calvinism, but I believe the value is resting in the providence and the sovereignty of God that what he is doing, he is doing well and he is doing right. And the best way to do that is to have a thankful heart. So it's taken me a long time to get to the point, but now here I am. A thankful heart is the combatant against being a complainer or being one who whines or is discontent. And to be content when the ball does not bounce your way teaches your children how to live. Listen, you are going to be in a casket one day and your children are going to have to learn how to live without you. Are they going to be those who live all the time shifting blame upon others. Uh, this week, I was watching a uh, Kirby Smart video. He's the head coach at the University of Georgia. And he said, there's one thing I want to tell you, men. He says, you must never live your life with your hands up. Never live your life with your hands up. And I thought, what does he mean? He said, if you watch anybody on the football field, when things do not go well, do not go their way, what they will immediately do, whether it is to their teammate or to the official or to whatever happens with an odd bounce of the ball providentially, is they'll put their hands up as if to say, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. He said, men, you always take responsibility for what happens. You never are looking in other directions to blame other people. And as we consider this, the ball is not in life going to bounce your way. So what we need to have is a thankful heart in order to understand contentment and providence. Be content when things don't go your way. You know what the, and I, and I think you know where I'm going with this. The opposite of understanding and receiving contentment 
is temper and anger and impatience and complaining and fault-finding. And the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 20, that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. A few years ago, I was in my church office, and our secretary was in there, and she was listening to a sermon, and it, it, was, it, was, it was me, I was preaching, uh, she was just listening to the sermon. So I'm walking in, I'm doing a little bit of paperwork here and there, and I'm piddling around, and as I'm listening to the sermon, I'm saying to myself, this is pretty good. This is, uh, this is, this is, this is very good. Uh, and I'm like amening in my heart and, and I'm listening and I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I'm doing a really good job. But as I'm listening simultaneously, I'm saying to myself, I have a pretty good memory. I don't remember having preached this. I mean, I, I agree with every word of it, but I don't remember preaching it. And I said to Raina, I said, Raina, when did I preach this sermon? And she said, it's not you. It's your son. It's Charlie. I kid you not, for three and a half minutes, I stood there and listened to him preach, thinking that it was me. Why? Because your children do not do what you tell them to do. They are who you are. They imitate you whether they want to or not. They might dislike you, but they still are going to imitate you. They still are going to sound like you. And I thought to myself, if he can fool me such that I think that I am listening to myself, on the grander scheme, do you understand what is happening in life? Something doesn't go your way. You blame someone else. You complain. You lose your temper. Your children are not sitting there with a notebook saying, hmm, someone took our parking place, make sure that you don't curse, but use the word that sounds like a curse word with the same attitude or, or, or whatever it is. It doesn't go your way. Your kids don't have a notebook like hmm, note to self, lose your temper, note to yourself, make a disgusted face, whatever. No, they're not writing notes, but it is sinking in nonetheless, and they will be who you are. It is one of the most disappointing and discouraging things in life as a parent to listen to siblings talk to one another and as they are talking to one another and they sound like you. Not just the tone of their voice, but their attitude. And so the opposite of temper and anger and impatience and complaining and fault-finding is thankfulness. So... As I said at the outset, the beginning of the last lesson, I learned a lot from my own sin, and I would say such was the case here more so than in any other area of my parenting. The next section in which we are going to have together, I'm going to give you a list of ways in which I failed as a father. I'm going to talk about ways that alleys that I have walked down which are dead ends. And I'm really not looking forward to that session, but I'm going to share it with you so that perhaps you can learn from my mistakes. But until I learned about the cross-centered life and the power of the gospel to impact 
one's demeanor. I was an angry man. I was a complainer. And I was a fault finder. And that's not to say that I don't struggle with those sins to this very day. But I really struggled with those sins in the early years of raising my children. It wasn't until I got a hold of a tiny little orange book entitled The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney that I began to discover that the gospel is for believers. It is the means by which the unsaved are saved, that you come to understand that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised again on the third day, and that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You cannot go to heaven, you cannot be saved apart from the gospel. But I pretty much thought that the gospel was just for the unsaved. And then I read this little book and I started to learn about how Jesus Christ should inform and shape and and impact the way that we live our lives with respect to forgiveness. Be kindly affectionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And in giving, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And in marriage, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I began to see that every aspect of the Christian life is informed by the gentleness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I began to be crushed by my own pride and my own sin. And I began to reflect upon the way that I dealt with disappointment. And I saw that it was not thankfulness, but rather it was complaining. But when I started to see the glories of Calvary in Jesus Christ, my heart began to change. And I repented before God, and I repented before my children, and I by no means was perfect after that. And as I said, it is always a struggle, and perhaps even remains a struggle to this day. But the fact of the matter is, when I began to see the glories of Jesus Christ in the gospel, I started to respond more with thankfulness to disappointment than with disgust. And so if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we really prove whether or not we believe in the sovereignty of God when we let our gentleness be known to all, as it says in, as it says in Philippians chapter four, verse five. You see, parents who can translate reformed theology into their demeanor are effective leaders. And so, let me point it out again. Use thankfulness. Use thankfulness in order to teach contentment. Number six, use joyful hospitality without petty grumbling in order to demonstrate selflessness. The people of God, when they came out of Egypt, were told from the very beginning you are to be hospitable. And the reason why you are to be hospitable is because you yourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, as you are coming out, you need to remember the sojourner. You need to remember the traveler. Hospitality quite literally just means love of strangers. And we are instructed directly in First Peter chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality without grumbling. Um, I want to tell you of a, a very selfish expression that my wife and I have in our lives. And that is selfishly, selfishly, we 
are hospitable. And by that, I mean, we really like it. Uh, probably in our home, there are more nights during the year when a guest or a visitor is staying with us than not. Uh, we have had people live with us for a year at a time. Uh, seldom is the door of our house actually locked. Uh, it just, it's too much trouble to look for the key. So will people will say, can I stop by your house? Yeah, it's fine. Go. The house is open. We love to have people in our house. We love to host people. We love for people to stay with us. We have selfishly had hundreds of guests stay in our house over the years for the purpose of helping us raise our children because as you bring people in, you are exposing them to different cultures. You're exposing them to different testimonies. You're giving them opportunities for evangelism. Our house is something which we use as a tool to raise our children and to promote the gospel And I am not losing my reward in heaven by saying this because it is in no way for us in any way a sacrifice. We just enjoy it. We really like it. We really enjoy it. Until somebody breaks something and they don't tell you that they broke it. And you discover it when you leave the house. Family this summer came and stayed at our house. I had to leave. I just said, when you go, lock the door. My wife comes home from the trip and she goes over to our washing machine and the door, which used to just set flat, now goes almost the whole way to the floor. How did that happen? (laughs) I can guarantee it wasn't me. I didn't touch the thing. Uh, Somehow it mysteriously broke. Or someone comes over to the house and they do not offer in any way to help with the cleanup. Or, and I think you've experienced, the people who come to your house and they enjoy a lovely evening together, but they literally do not know how to take a hint as to when the evening is over. You yawn. You uh, look at your watch. You don't even have a watch. You say, well, it's all right. It's, uh, I mean, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times. Well, hey, it's been good having you guys here. Man, they just, when you say that, they just cross their legs and nestle in and just start up a new topic. They don't know when it is time to go home. Or, as it says in Proverbs, Proverbs, step not oft into thy neighbor's house lest he hate thee. People who are, you know, it is good to see people, but, but it's, it's not good to see people every day. And when it is not convenient, and when it is not selfish anymore, but now when it becomes burdensome, that's when you teach your kids selflessness. I am ashamed to say this, but it is true. I can't tell you the number of times that my children watched uh, someone knock at our door. And as my wife would open the door, she would greet them with a genuine smile, but a an inquisitive smile. And I would have to whisper to her, I'm sorry, I invited them over to eat. 
And she would have no idea that they were coming over. And my my children would watch my wife play it off as if we had been um, inviting them all the time. Hey, come on in. Thought we would just have pizza tonight, if that's okay. Uh, but my children watched my wife exercise hospitality. Um, and there are other ways that you can exercise hospitality to the glory of God. You see, I think that the advance of the gospel will be accelerated by you exercising your selflessness muscles. And it is a way to teach your children that, guess what? Our dishwasher is not our dishwasher. It belongs to God. And this is food that God has lent us, but this stuff is not our stuff. We are not here to consume these things upon ourselves. We are here for the purpose of extending and giving. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want to tell you this. It is something which is caught. It is something which is caught. So I get out of college, 1984, and I'm going to work at a church. Peachtree Corners Baptist Church in Norcross, Georgia. I graduated on a Saturday. I went to work at this church the following Monday in June of 1984 as their summer youth director. I know that I did not have $10, but I know I had more than five to my name. That's all I had in life. And I was driving a 1976 Buick Skylark and, and it was a, it was a horrible car. I mean, my dad said, Ed, take that car, wash it, and then burn it. Like, it's not even, not even worthy to be burned. And, and I, I had nothing. I had nothing. Uh, I, I walk into the church that first Wednesday night, and Chuck Whelan hands me a $100 bill. It might as well have been a million dollars. And that has been, 39, 38 years ago, and I still remember it, and it still is a blessing to me that day. I remember how his hospitality trained me or built me up. There was another instance that summer. I was living with George and Kathy Vaughn in their house for free, and living there with them showed me how to be hospitable. A year later, my wife and I get married as we get married, we are now able to show hospitality. Why? Because we have been shown hospitality ourselves. And in the same way, you teach your children how to be selfless by exercising hospitality. Now, I know that in New York City, um, this is more of a challenge than it is in other parts of the country. You do not have as much space. You probably do not have as many beds. You certainly don't have parking places to offer or things of that nature. But whatever it is, whether it is your time or your money or what resources you have with respect to your house, you teach selflessness to your children by demonstrating hospitality. You teach, you teach it in theory, by telling them it is, is a good thing, but it is better to show them through what you do. It is the gospel that drives our hospitality, and so I would say be hospitable without grumbling. Two more, two more. The next one is extremely practical. This is number seven. 
And then number eight is the one that is most important. Okay, here is the practical one that probably deserves its own sermon. So I'm going to go through it relatively quickly. And in so doing, I realize that philosophically or maybe even convictionally, you're going to disagree with what I am going to say. But let me say it nonetheless, and perhaps if we need to dialogue, we can dialogue. But here it is. Use the chastening rod, number seven, use the chastening rod with faithful consistency in order to eradicate foolishness. Use the chastening rod with faithful consistency in order to eradicate foolishness. In other words, to the glory of God, spank your children. Here are several Bible verses. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That is, by nature, when you went into labor and delivery and you pushed and something came out, that which came out was a fool. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but by contrast, the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child, for if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from the grave or sheol. I do not interpret this to mean eternal conscious punishment and the lake of fire that you can spank your kids into heaven. I think that grave and sheol here means physical death. Like you are, you are actually helping to prevent your foolish child from meeting an early end by employing the means of the rod. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent. Remember the, the point to use the chastening rod with faithful consistency? Again, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then there's Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. I think this is the most important one because it says the rod and reproof. There are some parents that are really like big into the rod. That is, the kid steps out of line, they spank the kid, but they never explain to the child why the child is being spanked. There's, 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 it's, it's just, this pain will teach the child to be what he or she should be. There are others who are convictionally uh, uh, against spanking to the point where they think that it is a form of child abuse, and so all they will ever do is talk to the child. God says, you need to spank the child, and you need to talk to the child. Both the rod and reproof give wisdom. Now, please understand what I am not saying. Never under any circumstances ever, for any reason ever, should you ever inflict pain upon your child, which is in any way going to be permanent or even temporary in that you are injuring the child. Never should that be done. Never. 
The particulars of how and when and when not to spank, uh, they can be debated. But I just want to say that there are abuses of this doctrine. And there are many children who quite literally have been beaten under the false notion or the biblical justification of the Bible says to use the rod and there will be done in anger. It will leave marks. There is injury. And, 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 and I think that there are horrible abuses to the biblical doctrine of spanking. But overall, my heart is grieved, uh, in 2022 when I see the overarching uh, behavior of children. And I'm even speaking here. In fact, I am especially speaking here of children in the church, not just in our society, but children in the church who are not accustomed to hearing the voice of authority and responding in obedience. So every Tuesday, I teach a children's class at our church, uh, four o'clock every Tuesday, four to five thirty. done it for about the last 20 years. And it is really amazing. Uh, I can tell when I am talking to the children which children are being parented uh, with parents who require them to obey. It, 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 is, it is uncanny. You give, a, you give a directive to a child, and the way that that child responds will tell you more about that children's, child's parent than it will about the child himself. Um. And here's my concern. My concern is that this foolishness, which manifests itself in disobedience, uh, will translate into sadness. Preaching through the book of, uh, through the book of Judges right now. And one thing that we come to every week is that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's pretty much the way children are being raised today. Uh, they are being raised to do what they think is best. And this sadness that comes from not being obedient to authority uh, goes well beyond the childhood years. It, it translates into the teenage years. And so a child who does not obey their parents will then in turn not respect their teachers. They will not listen to their coaches. They will not do what their employers tell them to do. They will not respect civil authorities. They will not respect the elders in their church. And ultimately what it comes down to is they will not respect God because in no other area of their life are they obeying when God tells them to do something, either through a sermon from the Word of God or just them reading the Word of God, they won't come out and say it defiantly. But when it comes to the rubber meeting the road and them actually applying the Word of God, they will basically look at God and say, who are you to tell me what to do? I will not have this man to rule over me. Now, I do believe that one's eternal destiny is a matter of divine election. But I also believe that uh, the same God who ordained the end also ordained the means by which the end would be accomplished. And he tells us the way that we deal with foolishness is by means of the rod, consistent use of spanking. Now, I don't have enough time today to go into all of the particulars of how one should spank. Uh, perhaps in the Q&A, if you want to ask, we can get into that. But I will say a word about when. 
when, W-H-E-N, when to do it. And that is, you are to make a request in a conversational tone. And if the child declines, resists, delays, disobeys, or demonstrates a bad attitude, you should take them to a private place in the home, talk to them and make sure they understand what it is they have done wrong, spank them, pray with them, kiss them, hug them, dismiss them, and tell them, I am never going to spank you again. I will never spank you again if you simply obey me. I think on the back table there, there are copies of Ted Tripp's books. Yes, I see one right under your feet. If you could hand that one to me, the, uh, yes. So this is what I would recommend as being the most helpful resource, at least that I have come across. It is an old book, but it is a really good book on spanking, on discipline. Prior to reading this book, when Anna and I were raising our children, uh, we were fools. We were really, we were fools dealing with fools. And we tried every method to try to get our children to behave. And so we would use the, I'm going to count to three method. One, two, two and a half, three. We used the manipulation of, oh, don't you want daddy to be happy? Or, oh, you are making mommy so sad at this point. There was the vain threat approach. Uh, you know, I, I think it's odd when you go to the beach that people do not understand that you're not in a private room and that the wind is blowing so that your voice can be heard. You know, the, your voice is being carried. And so any conversation that you are having, there are other people who are around and they're listening to your voice. And I can't tell you the number of times I'll be at the beach. This family will show up. They will spread out their stuff. And the kid will be having a bad attitude or he will be disobeying. And the mother or the father will say, you need to straighten up right now. And if you don't straighten up right now, we're going to go home. It's like, no, you're not. You just, you, you just, you just drove here from Orange County. You're, you're not going to go home. You're, you're, that, that is a threat. And the kid knows you're not going to go home. We used the vain threat. We, one time I cut off my nose to spite my face. Uh, this was back in 1994 when the Lion King came out. And my son Parker, his favorite character was Scar. What does that tell you about him? Uh, and, and he was misbehaving and we had gone to the store. We had bought him a little Scar doll and, and I, I was upset with what he was doing. And I said to him, now he is, He's 93, he's born 91, he's three, he's three. And I said to him, Parker, if you do that again, I'm going to throw your toy away. We had just spent seven or eight bucks on this toy. And in 1994, seven or eight bucks was, it still is a lot of money. And, and I said, if you, if you do that again, I'm going to throw this toy away. He did it again. Oh, God, what am I going to do? I mean, and, uh, my reputation is at stake here. I, I have to now cut off my nose to spite my face. And I take the toy that I just bought earlier that morning and I throw it away. And he repeats his behavior five minutes later. He learned nothing from it. Every manipulative tool that we could possibly think of to, to move our children in the direction of 
behaving us. We were trying and nothing was working until we struck gold with the Ted Tripp book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. And Tripp makes the argument, you are the authority and God has placed you over your child. And for you not to exercise your authority is to sin against God. And so all you have to do is say it one time in a conversational tone. And if it is not obeyed immediately without delay and a good attitude, you spank the child. Here's the problem. People will hear this. They will say that it is a good idea. They might even believe it in theory. However, if you do not do it consistently, what you are teaching your child how to do is to play Russian roulette, put the, put the gun to the head, pull the trigger. I don't know. What kind of a mood is he in today? Let's try him out. Last time, he said it one time and he spanked me. Today, it's been two or three times. What's it going to be? What kind of a mood is he in? And the kid is, the kid is very insecure because he doesn't know when he's going to get it. However, if when you give a directive and it is not obeyed and you have a special place in your home, ours was the yellow room and you have a method. Ours was go to the kitchen, get the spoon, meet me in the yellow room and you do it consistently. What we started to notice was we started to say something once and they started to obey. Magical, magical. And I knew that we had succeeded one day when I walked out of the house, was getting in our van, Parker was there and he was shooting baskets in the driveway. And I said, Parker, let's go. And he has the ball and he's getting ready to put up one last shot and he pulls it down and rolls it over toward the toy box. I would not have spanked him for putting up the last shot, but he's saying to himself, this guy's nuts. I'm not going to, I, it's not worth, it's not worth testing him. If, if he said, let's go, he meant let's go. And I think that if we have that consistency, it will be a great comfort to our children. Now, now, let me say this. Every child is different. I'm sure it happened more than once, but I remember spanking my daughter, Savannah, one time. She is 25. I think I spanked her once. If you take my four children, here's the math. Parker, Savannah, Madison. You take the number of times that I spanked them in their life. You double that number. It would come to less than half the amount of times that I had to spank Charlie. <laughs> Charlie was the child that was more like me than any other child. He's the one that I am the closest to today. Not a day goes by that we don't speak. But growing up, it was a big challenge. He was very disobedient. He required spanking all the time. He didn't get it. 
But in time, God was merciful to him and merciful to us. And it started to, no pun intended, it started to hit home. Uh, let me explain it from, from this perspective. When you do not do this, you become emotionally involved. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I mean when I say this. Take out the trash. You're tired. You're in your chair. You have your remote. You are watching your program. You are eating your snack. You are just wanting to zone out. You just want the trash to be taken out. You say it one time. You really don't feel like getting up out of your chair, going to the yellow room and spanking them. You really don't feel like doing that. Hey, I told you, take out the trash. No response. Yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Now you're getting a little bit annoyed, but you're not motivated enough to get up out of the chair and to exercise the discipline on the child. And as you continue to ask, and as they continue to disobey, you become more emotionally engaged in it to the point where when you finally do exercise discipline in the form of spanking, you might not hurt them, okay? You might not injure them or throw their back out or leave a permanent mark, but here's what you have done. You have become angry. And when you become angry, James tells you that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so what you are teaching them is to be ungodly. To be godly is to be like God. God disciplines his children. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But God does not chasten his children in hot anger. It says in Hebrews, our fathers disciplined us as seemed best to them. And no discipline for the time being seems pleasant, but it's, but it's grievous. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. If you do it consistently before you become emotionally engaged in it, then what you will teach the children is his voice or her voice is a voice of authority. And I must listen when they speak. And so, having said that, I, 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 I just want to encourage you to give it a try. And, and you're not going to notice any difference in the first week. But I'll guarantee you that after a month of consistent discipline, after giving a directive, which they must obey immediately, you will start to see changes and the home will be a much happier place. So I got to seven of the eight. So here's what we're going to need to do. We need to eat. And then I think... There are two more sessions after this. One of them is a Q&A, and one of them is another uh, lecture. Uh, I will get to point number eight, which is the most important of the points. And then I will do the other lecture that I have prepared of mistakes that I made in parenting, and uh, then I think we'll be done.